What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and reported. I had to be a different complete spy, which is the guy who walked walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're gonna do 75 sets a day. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny enough, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diary. I'm Matt Ralston, and I host the show, along with one William A. Nagara, or Bill, as his friends call him. Bill is able to co-host the show with me by calling in from his prison cell, where he sits on death row at the notorious San Quentin State Prison in California. Bill has been on death row waiting to be executed for over 30 years. He's not your typical convict. He is a renowned artist who's had his paintings displayed in prominent galleries where they routinely fetch impressive sums. He's also a published author. Indeed, he's done more from death row than many people do with their lives in the free world. He's also seen a lot of things in prison. Things that nobody should see. Some things that are hard to explain. When we first started talking, I complained to Bill that I had to cancel a plane ticket and that I hadn't actually gone on vacation in two years. Yeah, two years. Then I swallowed my tongue. I finally took this vacation, and at one point I ducked into a closet to record a conversation with Bill. I turned the air conditioning off in the room because the sound of the fan is not good for recording. When we finished the episode, I remarked that I was really hot before I realized that San Quentin Prison lacks amenities such as central air, toilet seats, or a wet bar, and that's also incredibly hot and muggy there in the summer as well as freezing in the winter, as well as being infested with rats. Bill asked me how big the closet is. Oh, probably 10 by 10 feet, high ceilings. It has a skylight. It's a walk-in closet, I say. And I realize that this closet is bigger than the cell he's lived in for over 30 years. I feel embarrassed that I complained about an hour in such a space. Tonight we're going to talk about a guy who Bill served time with on death row named Timothy Russell. One day back in 1997 in dusty Palm Desert, California, Timothy Russell was having an argument with his wife, who was having an affair. The couple had a tumultuous relationship rife with domestic violence. Timothy had previously beaten her and held a gun to her head. Both had had problems with drugs and alcohol. But Russell appeared to be getting his act together. He was working in a sign shop painting signs. But one day something seemed a little off with them. 
and Tim's wife accused him of relapsing and using drugs or alcohol. She told him to leave, and he acquiesced and spent the night in the sign shop where he worked. The next day, a bartender at the Red Barn in Palm Desert reported him quietly sitting there drinking three or four beers and leaving the bar around 11 p.m. He then went to the trailer park where he lived with his wife and two children and where his wife's sister was staying temporarily. As he drank from a large beer, he started feeling a bit tipsy. He became agitated, and this woke up his wife. An altercation ensued. Russell kicked her and threw her to the floor. His wife begged him to leave, which he did. But before that, he ripped the phone out of the wall by the cord and made numerous threats, including telling her to not call the police and that he would shoot them if they arrived. Russell now produced an M1 semi-automatic rifle and threatened the wife's sister, telling her he needed the bullets for his gun, which were hidden from him for obvious reasons. She didn't want to, but he threatened her and she relented. Meanwhile, the wife was calling police. Riverside County Sheriff's deputies Michael Hagan and James Lehman were dispatched. As they approached the Russell's trailer, they passed under a light many yards away, which lit the general area, and six shots rang out from the dark. The deputies were sitting ducks. They were killed instantly. Both were found with their weapons still holstered. Timothy Russell, in his free time, often practiced target shooting in the desert. As officers arrived, he ran into the shrubby expanse behind the trailer, and when daybreak hit, he was captured without incident. He was interviewed and spoke about his deteriorating relationship. When he was informed he had killed the deputies, as he had said he shot at them just to scare them off, it was said he exhibited genuine remorse. Nonetheless, he was sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin State Prison. Nearly 20 years later on Saturday, October 5th, 2013, he was found hanging in his cell. The official word was suicide, but was there more to the story? Here's Bill. So as we were talking last time, um, we have an interesting subject today to speak about, and that is the uh, Timothy Russell, prisoner that was sentenced to death. And, uh, yeah, let's get into Timothy Russell. Um, and you knew him uh, from around, right? You interacted with him? Yeah, he was in the same yard with me, which is yard six. Um, I met him a few years prior to him uh, dying, and yeah, his his case is interesting because he's not a serial killer and he's not a guy that the public would normally follow. However, um, he did kill the two um, the Riverside Sheriff um, in the in a trailer park in West Palm Springs Village or something to that effect. And Palm Desert out was there. Yeah, it's out there by, by high desert and stuff, and he, this guy, um, 
you know, but he's having a bad day. He's having a, a part of his life was was kind of messed up. He's I felt as much as I can for a guy because he's not a serial killer. He's not a mass murderer. What he did was terrible, but he. Uh, from what I understand, you know, he had been an alcoholic. He was in recovery. I think he'd messed around with some amphetamines. He was living with his wife who was like openly cheating on him. And right, he was working at us. He was working painting signs and trying, I think, to be straight, you know, and he, I guess, relapsed this day and over the course of the day, he drank about 12 beers from what I read in the case file, which that's something, but, um, you know, a lot of people do that. And, and, and so what happened after, so what, why don't we start with, um, he's in a bar. Should, could we start there or where, where do you want to start? Yeah, no, yeah, he's, he's at a regular bar, like a normal guy. It, it was called the Red Barn Bar in Palm Desert. And yeah, he was drinking a lot. He was drinking both beers and hard liquor. And uh, he was under the influence of methamphetamines. And, um, you know, he, he ends up coming home. He gets home and he's not a happy guy. He's agitated. He's upset. And, um, and I think it had a lot to do with his wife and, and that relationship. And he ends up assaulting her, throwing her to the ground, turning the telephone off the line. And then he runs out of the house. And, um, you know, he comes back to the house and he has one of those M1 uh, rifles. And he's, his sister-in-law happens to live at that house and he demands that she give him the bullets that would enable him to do whatever he wants to do because at that point it's not even clear what he wants to do. But he tells her that he knows his wife is going to call the cops because he's assaulted her. And he says, hey, Take the kids and run because he was going to kill the police. That's that was his words, and um, so of course you know they call the police and he two officers respond to the mobile home park. A an officer Michael Hagen and uh, his partner was James Liam, and um, you know this is this is just a a bunch of trailers on the floor of a desert. This is not like a mobile home park you would see in a residential area. This is pretty scattered. It's, it's all dirt roads. It's dark. There's not many lights. And the, the officers believe that they're under the cover of night and they're, and they have the, the advantage. And so he assaults his, his wife and then he gets into it with his wife's sister who's living at, at the trailer as well. Um, and with the bullets, so was it like we know this guy is a loose cannon, so we have hid the bullets from him? Or I know a lot of a lot of times people keep bullets separate from their their guns. I'm wondering about that, and also how much of a gun guy. First of all, out in that area, everyone shoots guns in the desert. I've done it; it's fun. Um, it's part of the culture. Um, but he also had been a sniper in the military. Is that correct? Yeah, he was a former military, and he had the label of marksman, which is kind of it's it's a bit uh, misleading. There there are different levels. There's marksman, there's expert sniper, et cetera, et cetera. He had the term marksman next to his name, which means he knew what he was doing. He could shoot at a distance, 
but he wasn't what you would consider, you know, an elite sniper. Uh, because, I mean, like I said, this guy had problems. I mean, he, he drank, he had issues with drugs, but um, he got the bullets, of course. And and now... And it, wait, um, hold on. So I'm, I'm just trying to... Because I, I was... In all the documents I could find, I'm trying to set the story up a little better. I don't know if he did this kind of thing all the time. Was he holding his wife hostage or... You have 60 seconds remaining. Like, no, he was not. Why did he, he decide was he was going to kill these policemen? You know, that's a good question. No one's really been able to figure out what went through his mind. I mean, alcohol, methamphetamine is not a good mixture. But his wife ran out of the house with the kids. They were at a, at a different person's house, and they made the phone call because he had ripped the phone off the wall. So at that point, he had already made up his mind pay the scare or do something to anybody that came to the house looking for him. In California, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or d- Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hey. Sorry. Yeah. So, what? Why? Why do you think he had made this proclamation that he to not do not call the police, and if they come, I'm going to shoot at them. Well, he said he was going to kill them. So um, he left the house. Nobody knew where he was at, and. Obviously, his wife didn't know, but she was afraid for her life. She was afraid for her kids and her sister because he threatened the sister, too. He told her, if you don't give me the bullets, I'm going to kill you. So he'd make several threats that night, and I don't know what happened prior to this. It's obvious that because the bullets were separated from the gun or the rifle, it, there's a pretty good guess that he had done something like this before, and they were hiding the bullets for their own safety or maybe to keep him out of trouble. That's what I was um, thinking, too, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously... The, Someone has to get up one day and just decide, like, I'm going to do this. There, there has to be some sort of pattern. And if you're living in that type of environment, you can feel when someone is, is, is changing a bit. I mean, I, I went through it with my father. I knew when he drank and when he didn't drink, what his reaction was going to be. So they had a pretty good idea what he was planning, or at least that he was going to go through the motions of at least threatening. So uh, they make the phone call, and nobody knows, knows where he's at. The police on scene um, get there. They park um, some ways away from the mobile home, and they begin to walk towards the mobile home where Russell was staying with his wife and kids. Um, And about 50 yards from the destination, both of those officers pass through a security light. And I imagine the security light is a small light above a sign or something. Um, and when they passed through it, it gave Russell, who was about maybe 150 yards, 150 feet away, the opportunity he was looking for. So they're and just from, sitting ducks under that light and he's yeah. under the cover of pitch blackness out there. It's pitch black out there. It is. And in the crouch position, you know, the, the former military marksman finds his targets hitting both the deputies, one of them in the head, the other one in the chest, and silence. The next deputy sheriff on the scene is Mark Smith, and he finds both of his comrades uh, or colleagues lying on the ground dead. And it was um, 
discovered that they had not pulled their weapons or anything. So as you said, you were correct. They were sitting ducks out there. There was there's there was no uh, provocation for it. This guy just decided to shoot and kill two unarmed people because they didn't draw their weapons. They were aware of his threats, or at least that he was armed and dangerous when when they showed up, right? They were told by the wife that he had taken a gun and he had, he had threatened to kill them or kill anyone looking for him. But I'm sure deputies receive that type of threat all the time. I'm sure they took it serious. But who would imagine that, you know, we're 50 yards away from the trailer and we have any walking under a light. Would anybody guess there's a sniper out there and he's going to kill us? Yeah. And so he's obviously whacked out. I, this sounds a lot more like amphetamines than drunk behavior to me, but who knows? So he then runs into the middle of the desert and God, it's got to be freezing out there at night, way up there on the, on the high desert. And, uh, I wonder what he's doing. He's, he's deciding what to do, deciding if he wants to kill himself, you know? Yeah. Those are all questions that he would probably never answer, but he didn't last long. It was a few hours later. He came out of the, the desert and was arrested without incident. He gave up. He, he actually just walked in. He didn't. He didn't fight or hide. I mean, he made the decision just to come on in. Yeah. So then he's being interviewed, and it seemed like initially he was uh, not talking, which probably would have been advantageous for him. And apparently, a detective informs him that he killed these these cops, which I would assume he knew, but he, he apparently showed remorse right away, whether or not it was real. I don't know. But, uh, from what I read, he, he kind of tilted his head back and was actually crying when he was told this. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And by the time that he had come out of the desert, I think maybe the drunkenness and the use of amphetamines was wearing off and he showed a lot of emotion and Actually, during his trial, I guess under advice of our counsel, he, he admitted to shooting in the directions of the officers, but he said he was only trying to scare them and did not intend to kill them. Obviously, the jury did not believe him. And both officers were married and they had two children as well. So, tragedy from the very get-go. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people would be sympathetic to what he was feeling at the time, but the jury on September the 4th, 1998, came back with a guilty verdict on both murders. And um, then the, the jury attached a special circumstance of multiple murder and a killing of a police officer and they returned a verdict of death. Yeah. Um, so he, he, I guess the defense of I was shooting in their direction, trying to scare them at that point, I don't know what other defense you have that's plausible. It's It's pretty weak, but it is something to consider i suppose um so yeah he killed two 
two men with uh, families who were just doing their jobs and and doing a doing a good job. You know, they they showed up to this dangerous call and but in terms of the very crappy bar that you have on death row i don't even want to say this is the kind of thing that could happen to anyone because it cannot happen to anyone but there are a lot of guys who have meth problems and guns and stuff like this does go down unfortunately right yeah when you mix guns alcohol guns and hard drugs yeah things usually turn bad and you only have one person to blame and that's the person involved and whether he had an addiction or didn't have an addiction um i mean you are ultimately responsible especially when you take the life of somebody else for no good reason right and i'm not saying i feel sorry for him because i don't but you know there is just the the same old story i mean it's a trailer it's it's poverty he's got an alcoholic abusive upbringing and you know again there's no one else to blame but it's just when i when i look at the guy i don't see evil i certainly don't see evil and when i read about it no you're right and as you and i have discussed i knew him personally and um he was extremely remorseful but I, see, I, I know a lot of guys in prison. I've been in a yard with 700 killers, and I can count on one hand how many of them you can see the weight of their conscience on their shoulders. He was one of them. He felt bad about what he did. Whether it makes a difference or not, he can't change what he did. He can't bring those children, their father back. But he weighed on him, and I saw it firsthand. Uh, he was... Uh, a guy who was quiet, he didn't bother anybody, uh, and he, in in a lot of sense, was, um, you know, religious or spiritual. He he would go to services for, for Christian because I, I would hear his name being called when he went, um, which of course now he's here on death row and it, and it leads to the the story that um, about his death and, and the circumstances behind his death, which are. Shocking, stunning, incredible, um, newsworthy, and they're and they're they're pretty scary. Yeah, this is crazy. Like this is when you describe the phenomenon here. Uh, wow. Okay, so he is a like you said, he's a quiet kind of guy, and he strikes up a relationship with uh, a prison guard who you gave a pseudonym. Your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You gave a pseudonym to, and and they're talking and yeah, no, it's just, the story is incredible because I got it from the officer um, named Stuart who actually saw everything happen, and he sought me out because he knew I was writing this particular manuscript that I had put out. You know, signs everywhere. I told people, look, I'm looking for paranormal activity if it's happened or anything you see, you know, I'll explain He came to me, and I've known this guy for years, and he is an incredibly credible person, serious at all times, and yeah, he strikes up this, you know, he, he was a first watch officer, which means he works from 11 p.m. until 6 a.m., so he's here at the witching hour, and um, 
he meets um, Russell, and it's for months. It's just a, a nod and a wave as he walks by these, these nightly checks. Um, on one of those occasions, um, he says hello to him, and of course, Stewart says, "Hey, how you doing?" And they start up a conversation, and it's simple. It's just, "Hi, how you doing? You doing okay?" And that happens a lot on on, on the row. You, you see an officer; he, he's friendly, and a conversation starts. How you doing? Everything great? Oh man, you know, it's fishing season, whatever. But that's how it started, and the relationship grew. And, and I will say this: that this guy Stewart is an incredibly uh, human person. He's very interested in people's emotions. He's always asking, "Are you okay?" It's his job. He, he told me he took this job because it was he was there to the security institution, but he was there to do his job as California demands. So he's a very conscientious guy. And so to move on, uh, they begin to speak, and on um, you know one of those occasions after the relationship gets up and going, um, you know something really happens that gets. Stuart spooked, and uh, and that is that. Well, first he starts sharing some of his life with with, uh, with Russell. They, they they had a relationship, you know, two guys just talking, and one of the men was condemned to die. So Stuart told him a few personal things, not a lot, just that you know he was falling in love with another woman, and that um, he may be leaving his wife. So, and that's isn't that like a isn't that like a cardinal rule that these guards tend to live by, or, or maybe I'm mistaken, but it makes sense because you don't want to give anyone anyone who could be dangerous any leverage, anything that could get around, anything that could come back to hurt you or try and scare you or intimidate you, right? Any personal information? Absolutely. Yeah, because there's not a lot of great guys here, and if you give them some personal information, they can use against you, or they can use it to lever you, leverage you. So yeah, it's a cardinal rule. You're not supposed to do it. It's called over fertilization with an inmate. And it's, it, you can't do it. You can lose your job for it, etc. So, um, yeah, but they start talking, and on this particular night, he's walking, and he feels that something's around him. He feels funny, like somebody's watching him, and he turns around, to look for the gunner because the gunner they always do something called shadowing meaning that when you're walking on the terrorism officer checking the security checks an officer on the gun rail is walking behind you watching your back to make sure that you're safe no one's doing anything against you but there's no officer he looks and there's nobody there so he continues on his walk and he arrives at Tim's cell and he expects to have the normal greeting and possible talk but that's not what he finds he finds Tim kneeling on his bed. His arms are fully outstretched to his sides, and he's swaying back and forth. His eyes are closed, and he feels that he's humming something. He doesn't know what he's humming, but it sounds like he's humming. His and, arms uh, are fully outstretched, and he's he's usually uh, he has sixty seconds remaining. He's he's usually mild mannered and friendly, and all of a sudden he's he's kneeling on his bed with his arms like like he's flying and he's humming? Yeah, and he, the humming is interrupted by a strange laughter. And the laughter sends chills up Stuart's spine. And then somebody touches him from behind. Let me call you back. 
he's standing in front of Russell's cell, Timothy Russell's cell, and he's watching him sway back and forth. There's a giggle or a laughter coming from him. And suddenly, he feels someone touch him from behind, touch his shoulder. He swings around to look, expecting to see another officer, and there's nobody there. So now, I mean, he's on high alert. I mean, he's, it's, he doesn't know what to think. He, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. He's heard things that happen on death row that, you know, that ghosts walk the piers, the shadows move. He's heard, everybody's heard the rumors. I mean, it's not a secret here. Everybody's heard these rumors. And a lot of guys have seen it. So he, he, he doesn't know what to think. He turns back around to look at Timothy. And Timothy is still in that position, but his eyes are open. He's looking straight at him, kind of swaying. And, you know, you can imagine what this guy's thinking. I mean, at the moment, his, it, he said that it looked like it was Timothy, but his face had changed a bit. There was an alteration to his face. It was, it was subtle. It wasn't a lot, but it didn't look like the same person. And, you know, he, he's looking, he's thinking, it looks like somebody else. And just as the thought enters his mind, Timothy smiles, this horrible imitation of a smile. And in a voice he does not recognize and has an accent, he says, and this, he's reading his mind, he says, it is, but I'd love to chat nonetheless. Might we talk about Susan? You haven't told us how good she sucks cock. That's the exact words. Stewart stands stunned right there because he's never told him Susan's name. That's the girl, his mistress. He's never told her the name. Absolutely. An accent he's never heard before because Timothy Russell's not British. Right. Uh, and so he has in his wallet a picture of his wife. And is Susan his mistress? Or well, no. Well, as this happens, is he tells him about Susan, and then when he begins to giggle again, he goes back to swaying and humming and giggling. So, I mean, you have to understand, this guy, right in the middle of this thing, suddenly it gets extremely cold, and he believes that he's standing in front of a meat logger. It's just that cold inside of Tim's cell, and he can see his breath. I mean, it's just, it's frigid. And he's standing, he's right outside the cell looking at this. He's like, what the hell? Right. And, I mean, think about this. You've never seen anything on before. Suddenly it's freezing cold inside of a cell. You're standing outside, it's 70 degrees or 80 degrees. But you can tell how, you know when you open a meat locker, and you stand in front of a refrigerator, you can feel the cold inside. That's how he described it, open refrigerator. And this is this same phenomenon has been reported before associated with this thing, right? This is a consistent thing, that it gets cold suddenly. There are, I've, I've heard hundreds of reports of this cold descending on people, and they, feel, they can see their own breath, and it's 80 degrees, 10, 5 seconds later. So, yeah, this is something in all of these, in the majority of these paranormal cases or cases that something of supernatural um, content happens, this cold descends on them. Yeah, absolutely. Have you felt this yourself? 
you know, it's hard to say because I've woken up in the middle of the night and felt that he was watching me and it felt cold. I've never experienced that cold that they're talking about. And maybe there's a reason behind it because not everybody here has experienced it. But a lot of guys have. As I said, this is not a secret. Um, and, and they don't like to speak about it. Yeah, I, I try to get officers to speak about this and they've told me I don't want to talk about this. And they walk away. It scares them. But in this case with, with, with Russell, suddenly he just like his whole body relaxes. His eyes go back to normal. He, his face subtly changes back a little bit. And, you know, in this case, in this first instance, he begins to cry. And, um, and, and Stuart calls his name and he watches his tears very quickly. He didn't know he was there. And, and he said, I didn't hear you walk up. He doesn't know what's going on, which is so strange. Stuart asks him, are you okay? Is anything wrong? Can I help you? And he says, no, I, I was just, um, I was just sitting here. He doesn't remember. And then Stuart tries to uh, trick him. He says, uh, you, you know, maybe you'd like to talk about Susan. And Tim's response is, who's Susan? He has no idea mm-hmm. who, who she is. And a few moments before that, he's talking about the things he's doing. So, um, so he, he so the, the officer had told him about his personal life and that maybe he was having an affair or whatever it may have been, but he never mentioned any names. Never mentioned a name never mentioned anything about her in terms of who she was, what she looked like, just that he's falling in love with another woman that wasn't his wife. That was it. So, Stuart leaves and um, tells him, hey, we'll we'll talk tomorrow and he walks off. He's shaking, he's scared, he doesn't know what happened. But you know, when something like that happens, you tend to walk away from it and it begins to like, maybe you leave, you start convincing yourself nothing of the sort happened. Maybe I imagined it. Maybe it was just cold that day. You're trying to find logical reasons not to believe that something out of this world, something supernatural, paranormal happened. Yeah, so Stuart gets the shock of his life later on when his shift change comes. He comes to the officer to relieve him. And he, you know, good morning, how you doing? And um, he notices the officer's looking at him funny. And he asks him, What's wrong? Since you have a handprint on your shoulder. Stuart is like, what? He looks at his shoulders. He tells me his heart jumped into his throat. And there, plain as day, is a large stain that looks like a shape of a hand on his shoulder, exactly where he felt someone grab him earlier. Like a like and, a darkened, uh, like a like a sweat stain, or like what? It's like an imprint. Well, interestingly enough. An imprint, but interesting enough, he leaves the prison, gets into his truck, and he can't wait to take off his shirt. So as he gets to the bed of his truck, he starts pulling off his shirt, and when he turns around to see it, there, in fact, on his shoulder is a, is a handprint, but it's not a stain. It's burned into the fabric. To accept this call, say or... Thank you for using Global Tail Link. 
they cut off. I don't know what happened there. Oh man, it's almost like there's a someone was listening to us or something. <laughs> hey, I was thinking that I was thinking the same thing. Maybe that freaking little Irish demon was a little upset that we were talking <laughs> about him, huh? Oh my goodness. Uh, okay, so yeah, I was I was trying to visualize it, and it it's like almost like an iron was pressed onto his uniform that, that kind of seared through because you would think it would burn his his skin his uniform as well as if, if it burned through to his skin right exactly but he said that there was i asked him that same question and the thought that entered my mind was that it was a cold burn rather than hot or fire that it was a cold burn and he said that he had no damage to his skin or anything it was just a handprint on his uniform but it was a burn mark which really freaked him out um, so it's really interesting because you know, he returns to the prison and, and always in the back of my mind is, well, why don't these guys report this? And I asked him, well, you know, why didn't you report this? I mean, something's obviously going on. He said, he, he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, what are you going to tell the watchman, the commander? Well, see, I was in front of this guy's cell and he was swaying back and forth and he talked to me and had like a leprechaun and he said, it doesn't work that way. I mean, when you're experiencing this stuff, he, and he said, even today, talking to you several years later it bothers me i don't want to talk about it so i kind of it made sense to me i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't report it because i would think that i would seem crazy and that i could be demerited and i i couldn't see what good could come from it and i mean i you know these guys these prison guard guys are kind of mostly military background you know they they go after each other pretty hard too don't they locker room type stuff I mean, it, it, it's really no different than a prisoner. If you tell somebody something sensitive or emotional, they're going to clown you. It, it, it's no different in a locker room. And I think more so with officers because, you know, they have to project that tough die attitude and tough, you know, they're working at San Quentin Prison on death row, for God's sake. You don't want these guys thinking they're sensitive. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So a cold, a cold burn, because, you know, obviously I'm, from the north and you can if it's very cold outside and you touch a metal door handle it'll burn your the palm of your hand um, yeah I mean that's what I came up with I mean he said he, he felt a hand on his shoulder but he never would have imagined it would have burned because it just felt like a touch so uh, I speculate that because of the coldness in the cell it could have been colder I mean it could have been the opposite it could have been a fiery hand from hell uh, who really knows but I mean this is just my my take, he, he, he had no idea. I asked him point blank. He said, look, it was a burn. The, the, the clothing was exactly burned. But uh, he couldn't tell me how, where, or anything, only that he felt the touch on his shoulder that was in the exact same spot. And that spot was not, uh, he didn't have a stain before then or a burn there. And it was a perfect handprint. It was a very large handprint on his uniform, on his shoulder. Where is he going to pick that up? This, I mean, was it like a? Was so, it like the proportions of a normal human hand? No, he said it was a very large. And and by the way, Stuart is six foot seven. So for someone to comfortably put their hand on his shoulder, they would have to been extremely tall. So yeah, you know, so you start visualizing this thing, like okay, whatever it was, it was something not from this world. You know, I start thinking portals. I start thinking 
different things because of all these paranormal stories that we'll discuss, each one is slightly different. There are different um, entities or different spirits or ghosts or, in this case, demons that have that are in this prison or at least have been reported to be in, on death row and you know, haunting or hunting the men on death row because each one of them has ended up dead. So to continue on with the story, you know, a few weeks passed and really nothing happens. And um, Stuart goes on to tell me that he got to the prison one day, one evening, and he felt like this tension in the air. Something was gathering. He couldn't tell you what it was, but it was like a pulse slowly beating the presence. And there was a coiled, dark intent. He, 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 he mentioned that it, it just felt like his stomach was tight. Something was going on. So he does his, his nightly walk, like he always does. And he passes uh, Tim's cell and he finds him awake. But this time, Tim is normal. Tells him how's he going. They have small talk and, uh, you know, nothing else. And he asks him, are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm doing great. So Stuart leaves. But he's still uncomfortable. Something feels off. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. But, you know, some weeks have passed. He's not really thinking about what happened. He thought maybe it was a fluke, maybe it could be explained. He goes back into his office thinking he's being dumb. But he decides to walk the pier again. And when he gets to, uh, to Tim's cell again, and now we're past 2.30 in the morning, uh, this time he finds Tim cross-legged with a smile on his face. And his appearance is slightly different again. And he, in this British accent, says, Hello, Officer Stewart. So good to see you again. And Stewart stops. He's frozen. And he thinks, dual personality. Well, Tim, in that voice, responds without uh, Stewart saying it. He just thought, dual personality. He says, yes, let's call it that. And he starts giggling. But in the meantime... Let's have a look at Susan. You have a photograph of her in your wallet behind the one of Martha, your wife. And he begins to giggle again. And then he goes on. He says, yes, you are perfectly and beautifully clever. He says, tell me, Officer Stewart, does the harlot allow you to do the things that Martha refuses to let you do? And again, Stewart is looking at him. He says, who are you? And there's this dialogue. It's, it's incredible. He says, questions, questions. Who are you, might I ask? Adulterer? Fornicator? Pervert? Sexual deviant? Hmm, yes, yes. Let's add porn star to that, to that list. Since your heart allows you to do and film her while you perform such demented things onto her. This is a guy talking to him. And then he, he goes on and says, who am I? There's a little consequence. What am I is what matters. And Stuart is sitting there watching this happen. This person, this entity is talking to him with these awful black eyes. And Stuart asks it, who are you? And out of nowhere, a bouncing ball starts bouncing next to Tim. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And Tim's eyes go very wide. The ball stops. And Tim, in this British accent, tells Stuart, I am deaf. 
I mean, I, I don't know how you explain that. Um, so there's a then, like a rubber ball bouncing, just kind of uh, bouncing up and down, disconnected from anyone kind of controlling it. Absolutely. Tim is sitting on the, the corner of his bunk. The, bound, the ball is bouncing on the corridor. His team is just bouncing up and down, up and down, up and down. Suddenly it stops. And again, Tim just relaxes. Things change. The coldness, by the way, it's really cold. The cold has gone away. And Stuart is beside himself. He's scared. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, his heart's going to jump out of his out of his chest, and he decides to leave. He walks. He goes all the way to his office, which is at the end of the tier, next to the the the, the beginning of the tier, which is the uh, the front of the units. And he's sitting in the cart room, and he's he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to think. His heart is hammering a thousand miles a minute. Suddenly, he looks at the door of the cart room and there is standing Tim. The guy he just seen in the cell, he's wearing his blue attire, blue pants, which is the, the dress blues. He's standing right there in front of him, staring at him. And then suddenly he turns and walks away. Uh, Stuart jumps up and follows him, but the tears empty. So, so Im- Im- it's, to- it's implausible, obviously that he, could be out of his cell, right? So this can't be him in reality, right? Absolutely. He knows it's not him. There's no way. I mean, he looks just like him. It, it, it's walking like him. It's as tall as him. And so he rushes onto the tear landing, and it's vacant. There's nobody there. Then suddenly an alarm goes off. An officer's whistle is, is blowing. Someone's blowing an officer's whistle. So all the, the tear staff are running towards it, and he looks down the third tier, he sees nothing. He looks at the gunner and the gunner yells, third tier yard side, which is this, the tier the steward just came off of where Tim lives. He runs around the corner and he sees officers all there standing in front of what looks like Tim cell. He hightails it down there. And just as he gets there, he sees against the bars, Tim is inside of his cell, the cell's locked, of course. He's dressed in his blues, but he's hanging by the neck from his cell bars in a makeshift rope that he made with sheets. He placed it around his neck and then allowed himself to relax and stop tightening the rope and therefore strangling to death. And then they open the door because they want to see if they can save him. And um, they either too late, he's obviously dead. So what Stewart saw was his ghost walking and that was on October 5th 2013 and that was that's what Stuart came to tell me about and that's the story um, about Timothy Russell that has I mean it it, it left me pretty shocked and um, you know I've heard different pieces of that story but that I got from the person who actually saw the events the person who experienced it and the person who then, at a later date, brought me that shirt and allowed me to see it. And I saw the shirt firsthand. 
the shirt with the handprint. <laughs> the regular uh, CDC shirt. But the difference was that on the large shirt, because Stuart's a very large man, was a handprint. Now, I, I'm 6'1", I, I could pump a basketball without a problem. The handprint was probably a hand size bigger than mine. Hmm. Huge hand. And it was, by the way, it was burnt. Um, to the, it, was, it looked like somebody got a hot iron in the shape of a hand and stuck it on there for at least 10, 15 seconds to make sure it burnt because it felt different too. It felt rougher than the other parts. So and when these guys, that, when they're approaching you and enough that he, so he just brought you the shirt to look at, uh, are they looking for an explanation? Are they looking for you to validate that a lot of other people have said this for, for them to not feel like they're having some mental issues? Uh, are they looking for just catharsis? Why do you think they're doing this? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, and I've asked myself the same thing. And I, and I believe that these guys, they want to share it with somebody who's not going to laugh at them. You have 60 seconds remaining. They want to share it with someone was actually interested in hearing what they had to say. A lot of them felt that by telling their story, it, it kind of relieved them of having that responsibility in a way or that secret. But also, I believe that they, um, they wanted to bring out the truth. They wanted to make sure people knew that this place is completely haunted. And a lot of bad stuff happens here. Say or dial five now. Thank you for using Google Pill Link. Hey, Matt. Hey, yes. Yeah, what I was saying was that, yeah, by getting it off their chest, by sharing it, I think it kind of put them in a company of somebody else. It wasn't just their secret, their responsibility. And, um, I mean, a lot of stuff happens that people don't really believe and people don't know about. Um, and I'm actually surprised because I, I've had um, people look online for me and there's really no mention of St. Quentin Prison and paranormal unless you look into the 1800s and, and all the stuff that happened then. Um, so I think some of these guys, because everybody seems to know about it here, it's like the best well-kept well secret in the world. If you ask any guy on death row and you can get, at least get him to talk about it and ask them point blank, have you felt or heard something? Has something touched you at night? Something, and his eyes, their eyes go wild. They immediately acknowledge that this stuff has happened, but they don't want to talk about it. And it takes a particular type of guy to really want to share these stories. I, I mean, I was I was at it for two years just to, and, and I'm also a person they see every day. It's not like a guy interviewing them in a, in a visiting room. I see them every day, and it still was very difficult for them to share these, these stories with me. That's why I think that this manuscript, this book is so unique. And hopefully, as you both and I have spoken about, we can get this thing published um, because there's a lot to be told here. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And this environment is just perfect, fertile ground for this type of activity. I mean, we hear about a, a mental institute or you know, a house where some, some person was murdered and being haunted. Can you imagine how many murders have happened here at the prison? Executions, murders, tortures. It's just wild. 
I think, uh, how many people have been hanged there? A couple hundred? Oh, wow. There's been... I think 200. Yeah, it's... 270-something people have been hung here, and then... Then, and then they stopped executions by hanging, and they went to the gas chamber. And then another uh, 200 and some people were, were, were executed there. And then um, they've gone with lethal injection. So it, this is – but actually, if, if you think about it, the amount of people executed at the prison are a small number compared to all the murders, tortures, and deaths here over the last 170 years because prior to um, – the legal executions, there were lynchings, there was torture, and people died. There were, uh, as I've mentioned before, there are three cemeteries here at the prison, and they're full of bodies. At one point, the Chinese government demanded that the Asian uh, people that were buried at San Quentin be exhumed and sent back. Do you want to guess who they hired to do it? A death row inmate was made the official a uh, grave digger. He was doing the digging, pulling the, exhuming the bodies so they could be sent back to China. Not many officers work on death row because of the, actually officers have left here because of how scared they've been because of things they've seen or things they felt and they want nothing to do with it. I wake up all the time at one, two in the morning and I come to the bars and I listen. You can learn a lot of things in prison by just listening to people, what they're doing at night, whether it be sharpening a knife or you can see or hear where the area is so you know what's going to happen or you can imagine. But at that time of night, it is eerie in this place. It's super eerie. This is a prison. It's dark. It's gloomy. You're on death row with malintent. You, it's not a good place. Now add all the other stuff that we're hearing. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It's something out of the movies, honestly. Was Timothy Russell a guy who was into doing cartoon voices, improv comedy, pranks? Was he prone to displays of histrionics and things like this? Absolutely. Not that I ever saw. He's a very serious guy. Didn't do a lot of talking. If he said hello, tell me he'd say hello. But his head was lowered. He wasn't a very boisterous guy or the kind of guy you're describing, a jokester, prankster, not at all. He seemed like the weight of the, of the world was on his shoulders. He really felt conscientious about what he had done. So he was very serious all the time. So I'm sorry, go on, please. Well, I just can't imagine, because that's the impression I got, was that he was very serious, kept his head down, and... For him to stage this sort of weird attention-grabbing thing with pretending he's possessed and doing a British accent at the, the last moments of his life instead of saying, you know, tell my uh, son I love him or whatever it may be, it, I don't I don't see that. I mean, that would have to be some deep, deep, deep psychosis that he apparently wasn't exhibiting really prior. Well, right. I mean, to what end? He kills himself. He hangs himself. Um, and how did he fake the, the, the coldness, the, the refrigerator coldness inside of his cell and, and breathing when Stuart standing right outside his cell? And he's normal. How did he fake the, the handprint on his shoulder? Uh, he, how, did he, how did he guess? Well, he, let's just say, for example, that Stuart messed up and he did mention her name. 
How do you know the picture was in the wallet? How, how do you know these things? And I asked him, I said, well, did you have a picture of her? He goes, yeah, I did. And I said, well, I said, I'm going to ask him personal. I don't, I don't have to ask me, but did you film uh, you and Susan? And he looked at me and said, he said, Bill, I, I swear I did. I never told him that. Right. Shocked. So for for Tim to for him to accomplish that that would be some mentalist level. I mean, he would have to have spent his entire existence finding out this information, lobbying guards, you know, wh- whatever it might be. I'm not even saying it's possible, but just in 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 the realm of reality for him to accomplish that, it would have been just insurmountably difficult. It would have been impossible. Yeah. And there's, there's only one clear explanation for what happened here. And, and it's an event of, you know, a paranormal activity happened. I, don't, I can't, I don't have the vocabulary nor the expertise to tell you exactly what it was, how the manifestation happened. Uh, my job was to get the story and get people to tell me the stories. And I, I accomplished that job. But, I can tell you, I, I watch these guys. I witness them. And I'm a very good judge of character when it comes to uh, sniffing out people' inconsistencies and lies. My life depends on it every day when I go outside. These guys are not lying. Whatever they saw, whatever they witnessed, they believed exactly what they told me. That's it for this episode. Join us next week on Death Row Diaries, where we'll discuss the case of Marcelino Ramos, a convicted murderer housed on death row, who became increasingly frightened, scared to stay awake in his cell because he kept seeing the recently deceased Richard Ramirez. After pawning all of his possessions in order to buy amphetamines so that he could not go to sleep, he was found dead in a very strange manner. Follow Death Row Diaries on Instagram and on Facebook, Death Row Diaries. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't turn out the lights.